Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons, and welcome to the Innovation and Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, I'm, I'm really excited to be talking with Matthew Coughlin. Matt is the founder and CEO of Excel Technologies. Excel is a built-for-purpose company based here in Chicago with a laser focus on machine learning for dialogue that maximizes customer experience and sales performance while increasing client profitability and customer retention. Now, Matt, throughout your career, you've participated and led the building of very large sales teams for world-class brands like, you know, Disney, Apple, AT&T, GE, AIG, you know, the list goes on. And that's where you became passionate about the science of sales, as we've talked about. I want to, first off, obviously, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Pat. I, uh, I, appreciate, the, um, I appreciate you having me, and, and I think uh, your description of our business was spot on, so glad to be here. Awesome. Well, that's a great way to start out, Matt. If you don't mind, you know, please share with our listeners a little bit about uh, the background about Excel and why you founded it and how you see it fitting the market and all that really exciting stuff. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, if you just take a step back and, and a little bit of context and background on, on me, which will help inform uh, why we started Excel. I started my career really in sales. So, you know, just out of college, I had this decision between going into uh, med school and, and becoming a podiatrist. And at the time, a family friend was, um, this was the early days of software. A family friend was actually um, involved and asked me to just help them out over the summer. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. I fell in love with the notion of helping organizations understand why technology could be a compelling way to help take their business forward. And so that was the beginning, but that led then to several sales management jobs, as you had mentioned. And then the most uh, recent chapter prior to Excel, I'd been working with a private equity firm out of New York where I was the number two in one of the operating companies where you know, basically, we were bringing to life the customer experience for some really large brands. So as you had mentioned, Pat, Apple, Disney, Walgreens, AT&T, Verizon, GE. And I had 28,000 people on my team where it was really clear to me that there was a power law that was in play. And, you know, you, this will probably stand out to many of your listeners and many of the people who um, routinely listen to the podcast. But if you think about salespeople, they are not all equal. And I think when you think about this, it's really interesting, right? Because there's businesses that didn't exist 25 years ago, like Google and Facebook, where they together have now over a trillion dollars in valuation. And much of that valuation, I won't say all, but much of that valuation is derived from the notion that they're going to deliver eyeballs to websites or that they're going to help people come to your brand. But once people get there, I think what we find out is that it's really about who do they engage with or who do they interact with that has a material impact on whether they convert into a customer. So when I talk about that, I had the um, benefit for a few of those organizations of building their elite sales capability. So just imagine in, an, in a large enterprise where there might be 25,000 salespeople, they have this 1,000 person sales force that is the elite ninja sales team. And in that group, what we would find is that sometimes these people were 
10 times more productive than their peer group. So just think about that, Pat, for a minute, right? If you had 10 potential customers go to salesperson A, you might get two customers. And if you had 10 prospective customers go to salesperson B, you might actually get eight or 10 customers. And so um, I became maniacally focused on that power law where, you know, some of your salespeople were disproportionate in their contribution. And that was kind of the origin for Excel was this notion of, you know, how could I learn with certainty what these very best people were doing? And more importantly, how and when that applied. So I, I know that's a little bit of a, a long-winded introduction on my background, but I just wanted to let you know it, you know, it wasn't as if this came to me as a premonition while I was sleeping. It was an evolutionary learning of 25 years of, of being in corporate sales and seeing what I thought was a pretty extraordinary opportunity. No, it's a great point. And I, I see your 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 the trillion dollar businesses that exist out there and how much revenue they are driving and then how the retention and you know you mentioned uh google they're they're very well known for their lack of customer support right uh, that they don't do a great job that when people are in need that it's kind of a dissatisfying experience so the power law i think is very interesting that's something on as a developer and a technologist we talk about all the time right that the difference between a players and c players and what do they do so in that mindset how are you you know, I, I think I have a pretty good idea, but like when it comes to like, what is it that you're going to be doing that's going to take advantage of this, as Peter Thiel calls it, uh, things people disagree with, right? So what is it that you're going to do about this power law? Yeah, certainly. I, I think there's two things. I mean, if you just take a step back and looked at in our business, you know, the one thing that would stand out almost immediately is just the proximity at which we're taking really experienced operators, people with very deep sales background and understanding, and putting them very closely with brilliant data scientists and engineers. So uh, my partner and co-founder, Mark Storr, when he and I had met, he was getting his PhD at the University of Chicago. And he had previously worked at um, as an intern at Google Home. And, and prior to that, he had even been uh, about a year in advance of his PhD, been asked to go out and work out in Seattle for a, for a big retailer who probably most people would know. But the idea behind that was he and I started to really talk about this notion of building a machine learning platform that would allow you to harvest what the very best people were doing. And first of all, discover, right? I mean, a big part of this is just the notion that you would have a degree of certainty on what are these things that the top salespeople do that allows them to unlock so much value. So that was the first piece. Then we talked about how do we make that information available to every sales agent at the moment of truth. So, you know, let's say, Pat, you and I were in the course of a conversation where you were trying to understand the relevance of a product or a service for your business or for yourself. And there might be a sequence of discovery questions that I would ask so that I could better understand precisely what recommendation to make to you. There might be some very specific tacit knowledge. Maybe I knew of an example that I that I know would resonate with you based on experience. The fact that I had that I had been in the industry and dealt with other people like you, and you know, up until this point, all of that information existed as what I'll call kind of tribal knowledge. There might be a few people who know this, 
but it's not universally understood and known by the enterprise and certainly it's not amplified. So it's not allowed to be used across the entire business to start driving more sales. Go back to that analogy that you and I talked about where these businesses that are now a trillion dollars in valuation, they get paid to deliver eyeballs to your website. Well, let's say that you arrive at the website, you don't find what you need, you bounce back to the search engine, you then go to the website again, they've rang the cash register twice. So one of the things that stood out to me is some organizations are not really focused on you figuring this out. You know, this doesn't necessarily have a benefit. So for us, what we really wanted to do is really build this level of almost like a digital intimacy that you would have experienced, you know, that if you go back to the old general store, what was so unique and, and I think what was so great about that was the person in the old general store knew you. They knew your preferences. They might have known some things that were important to you. They might have even known through the course of conversation some things that were outside of your buying preference but were aspirational, something that you wanted to be able to do. When you think about the, you know, kind of what has been lost in the great kind of advancement with the digital landscape and the fact that you have this much larger canvas now, is that intimacy has been lost. And now what, you know, companies use, you know, is what I'll call intermittent beacons, like what did you buy last or what did you buy last and what promotion did you respond to? What we're really focused on is building that level of digital intimacy that existed in the general store, but it's scaled. So, you know, just imagine as an example, you could arrive at any website of any company that you like to interact with and have instantaneous access to experts that would help you figure out why this product versus that product or why this service versus that service. And I think the thing that's interesting about machine learning is when you think about the, what I just described, which is this notion of digital intimacy at scale, the only way that can really happen is through machine learning and the fact that you could have some degree of confidence that you will have the right information at the fingertips of people when they need it when interacting with a customer. Does that make sense? It totally does. Uh, and actually, I just saw a report the other day, and I think the, the sales skills necessary today because it's no longer show up and throw up, right? You're not showing up and like explaining your business. People have hit your website. They've gone through the social media. They're aware that you present an option. Now they want to understand how is it relevant to me? And I, I think what you touched on is like two really important things, the two concepts of sales that I think are a yin and yang of likability and expertise, Right. And there was a study I just saw recently about the four different quadrants of likability. You know, if you're likable and an expert, it's a done deal. But even if you're not likable and you're an expert, you still have a pretty high chance of succeeding in a sale capacity, right? As opposed to not being liked. And, you know, if you're liked and you're not an expert, they'll have a beer with you and hang out with you, right? You can be my neighbor, but uh, I'm not going to buy from you, right? Well, no, I, you know, I, I think there's some, there's some brilliant examples of what you're describing. Right? I mean, if I think, you know, you, you look at a business where I think most of our listeners would be familiar with, but, you know, you look at Best Buy, okay? And if you were to kind of track the seminal chapters of value creation for Best Buy, I think what you would universally see is that they're almost always tied to access to expertise. So originally it was the blue shirt, right? The person on the floor. And when they scaled that, 
with scale, it becomes increasingly more difficult to have that consistency of great experience. So they reconstitute that as the geek squad. And now that geek squad is the access to the expertise. And then you have some degree of difficulty as that scales. But today you have the in-home advisors. The only reason I thought that one was relevant, Pat, is you, I think most people had Amazon putting best buy out of business five or six years ago. What we've seen is incredibly durable is this notion of access to expertise because, you know, as people get more and more busy, they're not sitting here saying, hey, can I go sit and dedicate an hour or two to reading reviews? And oh, by the way, now these reviews are being consistently manipulated, right? So we know that, you know, competitors write a bad review. The company hires a few people to write great reviews, whatever that looks like, right? But I think <laughs> we as consumers, are, the radar is up that some of this content might not be authentic. It might not be real content. And so here's the dilemma. The dilemma is that you want this massive array of product availability. You want this wide array of assortment of things that you can choose from. And the internet in, in kind of the digital landscape is a great place for that. But then you also want this level of personalization that allows it to be about exactly what I want. And, you know, Pat, it's funny because, you know, I, I will tell you, I, I routinely talk to companies where if you were to look at the measurement and the metrics and the scorecard that they hold themselves accountable to, it's almost all about talking to the customer less. When did that become, what's the average handle time of our call? What's our, you know, it, it, they're, they're trying to drive down, they're trying to drive some efficiency metric, or they're trying to drive something that, to be honest with you, I don't really understand. Because for me, if you can create a learning machine for your enterprise that would allow you to learn from every single customer conversation, I think inherently inside of that, you would be able to better understand what net new products are going to be really well received by customers. You would be able to understand what net new services the customer is going to really appreciate. And we're using all these false proxies, you know, round tables, all kinds of other things to really get to the voice of the customer. And the voice of the customer is absolutely fraught with really, really important insights that if you could have more conversation with your customer at scale, as a business, you could build a learning machine that allowed you to be uh, much more effective. It's you know, it's just one of those things as as businesses were siloed over the last 25, 30 years, and then they were used to measure efficiency and effectiveness, you have whole groups of people where all they are really focused on is talking to the customer less and how do we build self-service capability? How, how do we make sure that the customer can get what they want by reading two or three screens or by self-navigating themselves through uh, our website? But what we're really focused on is, yes, certainly there will be periods of time where you want to go self-service, but you should always have the availability to talk to an expert. You should always have access to that that person that knows that business or that service best. At least that's our point of view, right? When you were talking, I was thinking about the brands that I identify with that, you know, that digital intimacy or trust, right, where there's that high-touch expert like apt electronics up uh, in the north side, right? Perfect example. You know, I have five kids. We went to go buy a uh, new washer dryer because we moved. And some reason, the former owners took off with the washer dryer. Apparently, they loved them. I don't really get it. 
But with five kids, we walked in and I, I told them I need pretty much like prison level kind of washer dryer. This thing's going to be rolling all night long, right? So, uh, and we looked at, we found the biggest one, biggest capacity, all that good stuff. And the sales guy says, well, how many of these buttons would you like to push? And my wife's like as few as possible. And he's like, well, this one's got all of these things. That's an extra $500. Here's a simple model, same size, same everything. Now I'm sure mathematically speaking, their net margins better on the one that's $500 less, but it doesn't change the fact that there's a person there who asked the question, why? Yeah. Right. Why are you want this? That's right. You know, Pat, I think inside of what you just described, there's this whole, besides the transaction itself, what I appreciate out of this is you have an impression of apt that is about access to experts. Right? So now when you think about that, you go, hey, I, I want to talk to an expert. And, you know, what I think is pretty interesting about that right now is this is a frontier. When you think about, you know, today is, you know, the, the podcast is, is all about innovation. And, you know, what I think one of the big gaps that exists today is we've done a, such an extraordinary job at creating commerce at scale. And now I think the next chapter of that, what that looks like is how do we bring that intimacy and personalization and relationship to the scale, right? And in my humble opinion, it should be something more than what I bought last. <laughs> no, I agree. I'm fortunate enough that uh, my, my father served in the Navy. So I, I actually have, I use the USAA as my insurance, my bank. I got a mortgage through them. I bought cars through them. I've never once been in their office the only time I've met somebody from USAA in person was actually at a conference around DevOps. And yet my loyalty to that organization is higher than any other company that I, I buy from or use their services or goods. And I've never met a single person. I've never been in their office. And I think what you're talking about is that should be the aspirational goal for everyone. How do you create that, that intimacy, that trust, that relationship that's born on a digital platform that exists because the organization actually does the things that they say they're going to do and are able to service their customers in the way that they aspire to. That's right. It's funny that you bring up USAA, Pat, because they are a sophisticated technology organization, but at the heart of what they're doing. I say the heart because I think when you're talking about something, what you're describing there, there's an efficiency and effectiveness metrics, but there's an emotional connection that you connect with a brand. And it, it, it is a, it's an interesting one because it either gets reinforced or eroded in every interaction, right? So you either have more trust or less trust when you leave each interaction with the company. And it's funny because, you know, we've been working on something here. You know, we, we've been blessed in the fact that we, we work with large enterprises. So, you know, two of the Fortune 20 largest companies and um, use our platform, two of the top 10 healthcare systems in the United States use our platform. And, and what I can tell you is we've been working on, to your point, the ability to use the content, the context, and the sentiment of every conversation to score every interaction. So imagine as an example, Pat, you have three or four interactions, and because we've scored those, and we know, we know if we met your needs or did not meet your needs, or we know to what extent we met your needs, that we would actually be able to understand with some certainty 
when we need to have an intervention. So how many times have you ever had someone, Pat, maybe dial you back or send you a text and say, hey, Pat, we know we missed the mark on that last one. I'd like to make sure that I give you the full and complete answer. And then also, as a token of our appreciation for your, you know, I'm also going to do X, Y, Z. Well, let me answer that question because I think it's the proof's in the pudding. Once, and it was USAA. Bingo. Right. <laughs> they they actually asked me to fill out a form about like what my property and they're like, well, we think, you know, we're charging you too much. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Right. Right. So I filled it out like the idiot that I am and sent it in thinking that here comes my raise, my increase. And they sent it back and they actually decreased it and said, we're sorry that we were charging you too much. We had, didn't realize you were that close to a firehouse. Yeah. Well, it, so it's a great point. And I think, you know, just when you think about this, first of all, I think some of this has been evolutionary for the companies. I don't think everyone set out to say, let's talk to our customer less. That didn't occur, right? I think everybody has been well-intended in their efforts. But if you just take a step back and you just use, you know, as, as my dad used to say, common sense is not that common, right? But if you look at this purely from a common sense perspective, it's really around, can we build a relationship with our customer that's more profitable? And to your point, you know, you didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be with USAA because they're 30 cents cheaper or or they give me this. You said, I'm going to be with USAA because I got a relationship with these guys and I trust them. And let me tell you something, that absolutely shows up in the context of shareholder value. For So it's not just doing well to do well. And there's a compelling economic picture that companies paint when they do this well that is much more durable than promotions and couponing and and all these other things, right? All of these, what I'll call kind of random acts of relationship, um, trying to create relationships, aren't actually durable. If you're building a relationship based on knowing the customer more and anticipating what they're looking for and building personalization and, as we mentioned, intimacy, that's more durable. We've been able we've been able to demonstrate that um, a little bit with our business here. No, and I love that concept of durability because I think. You, you talk about the transactional nature that so many organizations like, what is our cost per transaction and what is our cost, right? Are you McDonald's? Is that your intention, right? Are you trying to upsell me on fries I don't want, right? And even 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 McDonald's is getting much better at it. They, they hit me with a, a message last night. I was walking to the train. There's 40% off Big Macs, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying I got one. I'm just saying you can customize it on the mobile app. And that was kind of exciting, you know? You can get extra Big Mac sauce. Uh, but uh, the durability question, that lifetime value of a customer, right? That longevity. That's organizations B2B, B2C that are looking to create that. Because the real value is, again, the do well to do well is, is absolutely the right thing. It still has to make financial sense, right? And that longevity is like, you know, you spend money to get a customer. How do you keep a customer? And how much money are you spending to do that? Well, you know, it, it, just think about this. So, take you know, you take a an average business that you might interact with, and kind of the dilemma that they are always being faced with is that you have a certain way of allocating your budget. Let, let's just say your enterprise budget, but your enterprise budget could say, "Hey, I, I'm going to put anywhere from twenty to thirty percent of all of my capital into new customer acquisition, bringing new people into the funnel, and getting them into um, into spending money with me." I'm going to have 50% of my investment that's going to be 
you know, around uh, my supply chain capability of making sure that I have the products and the service, whatever this looks like, distribution looks like, right? I might have 20% around responding to my customer, right? When they have an inquiry, my current customer. If you think about that, that analogy, so what these companies are perpetually faced with is you have customers who are falling out of the bottom of the funnel, which means they've had some sort of experience that did not meet their expectations or kind of a, an irreparable, you know, kind of experience with an agent or something like that. And so they come out of the bottom of the funnel. And then what that means, Pat, is you have to put more people into the top of the funnel, right? And here's the thing. Anytime there's an imbalance between your enterprise where you might be losing some people out of the funnel at a faster rate than putting them in, or you end up with uh, things that will ultimately show up in Wall Street, right? That's the things where the company then starts to demonstrate slower pace of growth or lack of growth at all is these kind of imbalances that might exist. Yeah, there's, I mean, every market has a finite level, right? And if you're churning and burning, obviously at some point you can't keep acquiring, right? So you're going to, you're going to burn through customers at some point. One last thought. I just, uh, as you were, you were talking about, you know, you mentioned content, context and sentiment, right? That idea of like, you know, what are they asking? What are they currently going through and kind of where's their emotional state? Right. Those are the three things you're, you know, when I, I first, one of my first jobs at a college was working at Ameritech as a, as a programmer. And, uh, uh, they wanted me to learn COBOL. I successfully dodged that. <laughs> uh, but they, they also, what was very interesting is everybody in the organization had to spend a couple of days as they're onboarding in the phone room with customer support. And I've always used that as kind of a, a touchstone for like, if you really want to find out what, how to improve your organization, go spend a day in there. So when you talked about like using machine learning to, you know, take all of this information, distill it into knowledge, actionable activities, right? Not just through the prismer and, you know, the eyes of the people on the phone calls who just think that person's an idiot, right? But actually being able to pull out that information. It sounds like you're building, you're creating the ability to create not just this gold mine of how do we fix the small, but really, like you mentioned before, set yourselves up for the big innovation, right? What is the thing that they're not even knowing to ask, right? That if if they could, I mean, that's, I mean, half of innovation structures are to get your customers to partner with you, to help them, to help you figure out what products that they want. Well, it, it, yeah, and, and it's so funny that you're saying that, right? Because if you think about what you're describing, which is, you want to try and uncover some latent need that the customer has, but they might not have expressed to you yet, right? Or something that might be a future need that you would only understand if you if you had additional context. And what's great about that is it removes the transactional. It, so like, let's say as an example, you as a customer, me as a company started to have a dialogue. There would be a series of questions. There'd be a way that I could prove to you that it's worth your time to have the conversation with me. So I might say, Hey, Pat, you know, I'm an expert on this and, and, um, I routinely help people uh, figure that out. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And then you say, well, I'm trying to do this. And then I might ask two or three more qualifying discovery questions that first and foremost give you a sense that I do know what I'm talking about. Right. This is a pretty important concept, Pat, because we've been able to show with empirical evidence that 
the same recommendation made to a customer has a different success rate based on the context prior to the recommendation. So if, if I just simply blurt out and say, hey, Pat, this is what you need, you have a different confidence level of whether I really understood what your need was or not versus if I said, Pat, I'm going to ask you two or three questions. Here's what those questions will help me do. You answer those questions and I say, okay, based on what we've talked about, here's exactly what you need and here's why you need it, right? Um, and that is an entirely different effect with the customer. So when, when you're describing this notion of uncovering late needs or anticipating a future need, what I think you first have to look at is, you know, yes, there are certain things we'll be able to predict by your purchase history. Um, I actually think what I get is I get some of the most insane, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of mine that just recently occurred. I was on Amazon, I'm buying something. I had previously bought a Dr. Seuss book for a friend of mine's son, okay? Then I had bought a lamp that I wanted for our cottage. I have no idea why this would make sense, but they are constantly now asking me if I'd like to buy a book by Dr. Seuss and a lamp, again, right? I'm like, both those purchases are done. I mean, they're, 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 it, what that is suggesting is that now I have some sort of you know, predisposition towards buying more and more Dr. Seuss books because I bought the one or more and more lamps. And I guess where I'm going is that transaction history is a component of a relationship. It's a component of knowledge that I should have. But what really should be fueling this is this authentic dialogue that I build with my customer that allows me to know them better and um, allows me to be much better positioned to make the right recommendation or make the right suggestion or bring up the right product. I think I can talk about this forever because I find the science of sales so interesting, right? Just the philosophy, the the, the psychology of it all, uh, the concept around asking just even the most, you know, introductory questions to set a person's mindset that they're being heard before they're being dictated to. Is, is And I think as a consultant, I can tell you, I spent many years and a technologist loving to just tell people the answers. Right. And not understanding. And I think, honestly, this is something I think people who want to do innovation uh, in their organizations, when you apply some of these rudimentary to, you know, even rudimentary forms of salesmanship into why am I not being heard, even though you have the right answer. Right. And that's great. You have the right answer. Did you listen first is really kind of that first question is, if you know. A lot of great books by Cialdini. I'm sure you've read them all. I love Cialdini. Cialdini is, you know, um, Influence is one of the better books that I, you know, there's a lot of great content out there. We, you know, here locally, we have, we have Naylor and, and we have uh, really good stuff, or Thaler rather, and we have really good stuff from, uh, from Thaler out of the University of Chicago and the behavior, Behavioral Economics team there. But to your point, Cialdini, what I love there is that the guy had spent his life and or a significant portion of his career in service of doing what you just described, which was not telling what people are doing, but just discovering what they were doing, like learning what are these best people doing, and then being able to synthesize that into something that is, in, in that instance, a book and some courses that you can take. We're doing something very similar to that, but we're just doing it in the context of a machine learning platform. And you know the concept that we have and what's been deployed now on many thousands of desktops around the world is uh, what we call a cobot. And a cobot is quite literally um, an augmentation to the person 
where we're providing them exactly the right information that they need based on all previous conversations. What would the best person have done given this inquiry and how might they have structured that conversation? But giving it to them right at the moment of truth. That's awesome. Yeah, just real-time transcription of the conversation, the machine learning models crunching it and saying, hey, I have exactly the right information for you right now to meet that customer's needs. And it may be something that you weren't even aware of, right? So you go back to your example, Pat, when I, you know, I had this one that was really similar to the apt example. We could show that with empirical evidence that when two people were looking at the mobile phones and they were comparing the, the uh, cameras of the mobile phone. So they would say, hey, what's the difference between the camera on this mobile phone or that mobile phone? A um, factually accurate answer. So someone answering the question correctly could have said, well, that one right there is 18 megapixels and that one's 40 megapixels. And that had a success rate, okay? But then you had, the, you had, this, you know, you had this top salesperson who had not just the understanding, the feature understanding, but he also had the tacit knowledge. He or she also had the tacit knowledge. So what she might have said is, that one is 18 megapixels and that one's 40 megapixels, which is the difference between seeing your daughter's silhouette on the soccer field or being able to see her face up close when you want to take a picture. Uh, you know, can, can we go up to the checkout line, right? And, and yeah. I say that, but like, you know, just think about it. Are you there to buy a camera or are you there to buy the result, which is the best picture of my family or the best picture of my loved one? Or when I go out into nature, I want to be able to take some great pictures. That's the result you're looking for. And you have so many people who can provide a factually accurate answer, but that connection, that little subtle connection of being able to make it important and understood and why this camera would help that person versus that camera. No, that's fantastic. And I love, I love the, you know, there's so many times people give you examples where they're like, oh, I think, uh, well, where the examples are just like, well, that's a layup, right? Like that is a great example only because you're talking about the most, I mean, this is a commodity discussion that has turned from a commodity to like, how is it valuable to me? Right. That's right. Like I'm going to pay an extra $80 for this camera or, you know, in the Apple case where you can get the $1,200 phone that apparently you have to be some kind of cinematographer or cinematographer to like get value <laughs> out of. But, uh, but it's great context of like, so, or the question of like, so, why are you asking, right? So what is, you know, you're clearly, you know, you're not looking for the cheapest model. You don't want me to talk you into buying the cheapest model. You don't want to talk to a salesperson in the first place. <laughs> so That's it's right. like, you know, if you're going to have this conversation with me, there's clearly a reason you're asking the question. But I love that context. I, I saw a great person explain, great salesperson explain their business. They, they're a manufacturing company that manufactures everything that goes on fire trucks, except for the fire truck, right? And so, you know, when people try to explain their business, it's very much very me centric, very hard to identify human beings like pictures, right? The picture that that person gave you is, you know, you, you, you know, that context, you're sitting in the field and you're watching the video later and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't see anything. Right. Or you're sitting there doing this thing with your phone, trying to like <laughs> zoom in and it doesn't work. And people, you remind them of their pain, their frustration, but so this manufacturing company, they, somebody asked him, what do you do? And he's like, well, if you took a fire truck, turned it upside down and shook it, everything that falls off is what we make. There you go. Great. 
Exactly. One, I'm I'm engaged, mentally stimulated, right? I'm like thinking about like, okay, so how do you do that? But, <laughs> That's exactly right. So one of the things I, I would like to pivot a little bit around, you know, obviously really excited about your product. I think what you guys are doing is awesome. I'm a big advocate of like that trust relationship. I do think you're absolutely on the right track of like, this is the future, right? The relationships, we're going to have relationships like we've never had relationships with the companies that we work with. One thing I'm, I'm interested in, like conversations we've had in the past, you know, you've talked about creating an environment of constant learning. And I think, uh, you know, if you, there's a phrase that you use uh, for that called open for business. And I really love that idea around how are you creating an environment? I know you guys are rapidly growing. You've got a lot of people coming in. You're, you're adding staff all the time. How do you maintain that as you're going through these different levels of success and growth? Well, it, it's funny, Pat. I mean, it's, it's a, and I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, I've had two extraordinary mentors in my life. One is my father who, who actually, that's where I picked up the term open for business, right? So my dad was, uh, you know, if you go back, this was an awful long time. If you go back, you know, people used to get milk delivered to their to their doorsteps, and he owned one of those milk distributorships. When he came back from uh, from the service and, and being in Korea, he had a uh, milk distributorship. And you know, as a small business entrepreneur, I think one of the concepts he kind of instilled in this was this notion of always being open to learning more. You don't you don't know everything, and I think that was because you know he, as a first time entrepreneur in our family, put himself in a spot to be uh, learning more. So that's where the term open for business came. And, and where what open for business really means is that, you know, there, there is a decision that people make of your receptivity to learning more, right? And sometimes, you know, you've been doing something for a long time and you might even consider yourself an expert on it. Um, and this is gonna get to my second mentor in just a moment, but, you know, just simply through your sheer accomplishment, you might say, I've got all the answers. My, my second mentor is my sister, Mary, who's a trustee at the University of Chicago. She had been one of the three people who took Accenture public. And then she started a business from a blank sheet of paper here in Chicago and got it to a $3 billion market cap. And what I can tell you is here she is really far along in her career. And it's great. I mean, you'd be so surprised, Pat. She'll sit with Mark Storr, my, my our chief technology officer, and she's a sponge. She wants to learn all of this new information, all of the new concepts, because she's open for business. And I think that's just such a, you know, when I talk to our team and I've, I've been blessed, I mean, I, you know, building this company, I have been able to surround myself with people who I think are demonstrating two things that I think are so important. First of all, if you just thought about your career in the context of a book, and that every single thing that you're doing is a chapter. So like, you know, as an example, their time here at Excel is a chapter. And we talk about writing the most important chapter of your career right now. What will it say? So if you come to us as an entry level employee, what would that look like? In three years, I distinguished myself from my peers by doing these things. I accomplished this level of achievement. I positioned myself to do this and I made these really important contributions to the company, or if you're a leader, right? But inside of that notion of writing the most important chapter of your career, what we try and focus on is this is this idea that if you came here and you leave here with exactly the same amount of information or knowledge or, or know-how, 
we've missed the mark, right? And so the idea is that we, we wanna kind of find people, we wanna actually literally find people that are looking to write the best chapter of their career and then who are open for business, meaning they're wanting to learn and apply that learning and then use that learning to write the best chapter. If you just think about those two things together, they almost make a flywheel, right? The more I learn, the better my chapter gets, the better I apply that learning, the more that I get that opportunity to learn again and apply it. And so that flywheel starts to, to go. And, and it's it's funny. I mean, we have people that are joined our business as university interns and now are running multi-million dollar projects for us because they have this kind of demonstrable trait of learning, applying it, and trying to create disproportionate, you know, kind of contribution. And I love that. I just when you brought that up, I was glad to hear that you did because I think this, I think, you know, one of the things that takes a job from a job to a journey is the fact that you have a chance to learn some things along the way. You know, it's you're actually building muscle, you're building capability, you feel more fulfilled. Those are the things I get excited about. That's fantastic. I, I love, you know, the concept of that three year write your best chapter, right? I, and I think that is exactly in sync with what most, I don't know, high performers are looking for. They know that they're not going to stay at one job for the rest of their lives, but they're looking for some place where it's like, look, we're committed to doing something great. Join the band, get on board, you know? So I really appreciate you taking the time to share all of this. I think it's exciting. Love the, you know, good Southside guy doing well here in Chicago. Right. All exciting stuff. Matt, this is, first of all, I think you guys do an unbelievable job. I think, you know, first of all, this notion of bringing, you know, entrepreneurial stories, you know, Chicago is, um, I mean, let's just be clear. I think we are the best kept secret in the world. Right. I mean, let me just give you the way that I think about it. I've got the University of Chicago. I've got Northwestern. I've got the University of Illinois. I've got IIT. I've got Purdue. I got all these schools. And I've got this brilliant concentration of really smart people. And I think part of the underservice that we've done is giving them endeavors that are big enough to work on. And I think what's really exciting about this is I really believe based on the behavioral economics team at the University of Chicago and the great minds that are coming out of there and the brilliant marketing minds out of Northwestern and the engineering out of all those other schools, I would say if you were to do a topology and say where in the world should the best work be going on on dialogue? I would tell you that the dime drops right here on Chicago. And I'll tell you this, if you're sitting somewhere in the world where you are interested in writing the best chapter of your career in the context of machine learning for dialogue, get on a plane, get on a train, get, do whatever you have to do, but get your butt to Chicago because this is where the best work in the world is happening, right here. Right? That's just passionately what I believe about the environment. And the only way an environment like that happens is with people like you that are bringing the innovation to the forefront and keeping it front and center in people's minds so that they can see it and they can understand what opportunities are existing. So I, I appreciate what you guys are doing. No, I thank you. I, I appreciate that. But I, I also think what you guys do, I, I just celebrate the people that I admire, uh, being an entrepreneur, being an innovator, especially in a, in a good economy, you almost got to be crazy to do the things that you guys do, where it's like, there's an easier path to life, right? 
There's, you could definitely be home at 5.15 if you wanted to be, right? Hey, listen, my wife tells me this, Pat. Don't, don't say this. Is this, is this being recorded? Well, you can have her listen, right? And you can tell her, like, well, Pat said it's okay. She can hate me. You'd be my first friend's wife who says, don't hang out with that guy anymore. But uh, anyways, again, uh, I'd love to have you back. Uh, I think there's a ton of stuff. I'm going to go look up things about Thaler because, honestly, I didn't know too much. Uh, but I find that uh, that kind of behavioral economics super exciting. Uh, oh, yeah. I do think a lot of good points here about how are you going to create that long-term relationship, even on a digital platform, right? Distribution, sales, how are you innovating on those things? Because they're, they're, if anything's ripe for disruption, it's it's definitely that. So poorly implemented. Um, but again, I just want to say thank you for giving of your time and sharing your story. Uh, yeah. We all wish you nothing but continued success. And if anybody is, I know you guys are hiring. I know you're looking for some talent. Uh, so check it out. It's a great organization. Uh, he's an awesome guy to have coffee or a beer with anyways. So, Matt, thanks again. Let's touch base. Thanks, Pat. Beer or coffee soon, bud. Take care. Awesome. Take care. All right. So anyways, uh, I also wanted to thank our listeners. Uh, we really appreciate everyone taking the time to join in. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as we publish these, right, please share them with a friend. Uh, share this podcast with anybody you think would be interested. Obviously, we'd love to have more listeners. Uh, you can subscribe by visiting on our website at dragonspears.com slash podcasts or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.